0: Do we have any seasoned sailors here in Indiana? Anyone here? Sail a boat ever? Sail by the stars? I looked up an article on how sailors navigate by the stars. It says, By observing the position of stars in the sky, you can find your bearing in unfamiliar waters and navigating strange seas. Star navigation has been used by seafarers for centuries And is used to, uh, is useful, is a useful skill for any boater to know. You know, sometimes life feels like open waters, doesn't it? Sometimes life feels like strange seas. They say life is a road. Sometimes like, man, if only there was a road. If only I knew where the curbs were so I could know basically where to go. Sometimes it feels like open water. We don't know where we are, where we're going, what we should be doing, what's coming over that next wave, and it all seems so strange. Um, why would sailors still use their celestial navigation today by looking at the stars? Because we got GPS after all, right? Well, sailors still need to use it because sometimes GPS goes out. And, uh, and I'm going to say that when we go to God's Word, that's like navigating by the stars. And sometimes we have helpful resources and tools at our disposal. A, a spiritual GPS, whether they be uh, Bible studies or resources, online resources, churches, pastors, spiritual accountability groups. Those are great GPS resources spiritually, but sometimes they're not reliable. What's going to happen when you have nothing else But this book right here, will you be able to navigate those dark waters? Sailors today still need to know how to navigate by the stars because sometimes you sail by day and you sail close close to shore and you use landmarks, but then if the sun were to go down, And now you can't find that landmark, what do you do? And in our life, we have familiarity and sometimes it vanishes. We have security and sometimes it's gone. And sometimes we think we're navigating by the stars, but in reality, we have these familiar things around us and then when God removes those, we feel lost. Celestial navigation relies heavily on the position and movement of the constellations. course constellations are grouping of stars that create recognizable patterns in the sky and when i look at god's word the familiar stories that we have the bible passages that we can outline so easily maybe sermons that you remember that were influential in your life i I see those as the constellations these verses create a pattern in our life and we use those to navigate but it says that the north star has served as a reliable beacon to guide sailors home because though the constellations will change in position in the sky, the north star never does. All the other stars in the northern hemisphere rotate around it. But because the north star appears stationary in the sky, seafarers can easily find truth by locating that north star. And I would like to make the argument that that north star is Jesus Christ. All these passages in the Bible... Are the constellations, but unless we can see what those constellations are in relationship to Jesus Christ, they will be of less value to us. Now, interestingly enough, all this takes place on the northern hemisphere. If you're on the southern hemisphere, and I only say this because it seems somewhat fitting for a sermon, you don't have the north star, obviously, if you're in, if you're in the southern hemisphere. So, what do they use? Oh, we don't have any pictures of the stars, though. Jeannie? I'm sorry. That was supposed to be in the background while I was elaborating on the stars. But we got the North Star. That's the next picture. should be. There's the North Star. And then if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, you don't have that star. So what do you have to guide yourself? They have the Southern Cross. And the Southern Cross reaches the highest point at night when it is pointing due south. At its apex, the Southern Cross will stand perfectly upright over the horizon with the long part of the cross pointing straight down towards the South Celestial Pole. Not really work workable in my illustration, but it's a cross and we're in church, so I thought that was kind of cool to mention. But back to what I was originally saying. All all the all the Bible passage and the passages and the familiar stories that we have in Scripture, those those are like Um, the constellations but without being able to identify the north star of scripture that is jesus christ the constellations of all the bible stories and all the passages are limited and you need to develop the skill of finding jesus in every passage of scripture lest you find yourself in dark waters with no way to navigate you know, I read stories about those who have suffered severe persecution. It's good to prepare ourselves. You never know what life might hold for you. But one common thread in all of these that are godly people that are suffering severe persecution, they just, they regret that they didn't get more of God's Word into their mind. Because when that was gone, what, what did they have? They realized how helpless they were without it. And so let's, with all that in mind, let's set our sails for 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And here, we're going to continue with this thought of how do, we, how do we find Jesus in so many different places in Scripture, and what's the value of it as well. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 10. Let me go ahead and read a chunk of it, and then, and then we'll jump into it. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So, First, let's go through here and just kind of quickly identify. I, I see four or five specific types of Christ in this passage, and a, a type being a shadow, something in the Old Testament. that was just a shadow, a form, an image pointing to the reality of Christ that would come. And so to set the context, let's look at verse 1 and 2. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So of course this is talking about the children of Israel when the Lord when God was a flame, a pillar of flame to guide them, he was a cloud to guide them. Of course they parted through the Red Sea before they went on their wilderness wanderings. Verse 2 says all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And this is a hard this is we just have too much. I can't spend too much time on this, but Here's what I'd say. When we get baptized into water, that's, that's the beginning of our discipleship journey. That's when we are committing to Christ, and now we're following Him, and we're growing in our maturity. And in the same way, when they passed through the waters, when the waters were parted, and the nation passed through, that was kind of like their baptism. They committed, we're following Christ, and then that was the beginning of their journey. I think there's some similarity there. And of course, we're not just baptized into water but we're also baptized into Christ Himself, right? And this is, an, this is a type that we're not even going to touch on today, but there's all, we have a whole sermon ready for that in the future. But Moses was a type of Christ, a very significant type of Christ. And so I, I think those are, those are points that are being touched on here, but let's, let's move on. Look at verse 3 and 4. All ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual Drink. Now, in this, both those are, are characterized by the word spiritual. And in this context, I think the word spiritual is giving us a clue. It's telling us that it's talking about a type of Christ. We're going to see that in just a second. But they all drank the spiritual drink. They drank, they ate the spiritual food. We're talking about the manna that fell from heaven. We're talking about the water that they drank out of the, out of the rock. And Jesus, in John chapter six and verse twenty-two, said, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst." This is in the context of him of Jesus saying, "Moses provided manna for your fathers, but I I am the bread of life." So Jesus is saying, "I am the bread." He later says, "I am the water." And so what we learn from this is. Jesus is our sustenance. This is why we take communion once a month to remind ourselves and preach to ourselves that Jesus is our sustenance. Without Him, we cannot live. Man cannot live by bread alone. We need the Word of God. We need Jesus Christ. And so we must live off of Jesus. So this is, I think, the spiritual food, the spiritual drink is referenced back to Numbers 11, Exodus 16. And, and by the way, I'm just going to kind of rush through these uh, four types of Christ, but we have, the next four weeks, we have a sermon devoted to each one of these types, okay? COVID has kind of put an end to it, but... Um, one of the things I used to look forward to at the grocery store was the, the the tryouts. You know, they'd have the little hot dogs on a or a piece of ham or something on a toothpick, and you'd take it. Oh, it's so good! And then you would decide, oh, I want that cracker with this cheese. And hey, what'd you get over there? That's kind of what this sermon—the first half of this sermon—is that you can just get a, just a taste of the few sermons that are coming after this. But the first one we see, the spiritual food and the spiritual drink, serve to teach us that Jesus Christ is our sustenance. But look at verse. 4b says they all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was christ so there's one thing that's easy to understand here and two things that are confusing one they all drank from the spirit uh they all drank the same spiritual drink from for they drank from the spiritual rock we remember two passages in the old testament one where Moses strikes the rock. They're about to thirst to death. He strikes the rock, the water comes out, and the whole nation can drink. And then another time, he, God says, Speak to the rock, but he strikes it again. Moses is frustrated or disobedient or something. We don't know. And the water still comes out and saves the nation, but Moses is severely punished for not speaking to the rock. But So that's the easy part to understand. We know those stories. But then it says... The rock that followed them. We we don't really see that in the Old Testament. The rock followed them? Was it a boulder rolling like uh, a la Indiana Jones following them through the wilderness? You know, we have a first century uh, uh, scholar uh, who wrote the Pseudo-Philos biblical antiquities and he references this as well. Only he calls it a well of water following them. Um, and so maybe there's a there's a verbal tradition here that is lost to us but was still present when they when these passages were written. But we do know that both times the rock was struck, he named the rock, and he named the rock the same thing: Meribah, which means testing. And we're gonna see that I don't think it was the people that were being tested. I think the people were testing God. But we'll we'll look into that at another sermon. But perhaps because he named the rock the same name, they had this idea, you know, and maybe if they went back to that rock or someone else went to the first rock, it wouldn't give them water. And so in their mind, they see this well traveling with them and uh, whichever rock Moses would hit there, the water would come. But then there's even something else more strange. He says very clearly, and the rock was Christ. Now this, I think, gives us great clue in how to study out types of Christ. Paul had a boldness here to say, "Look, look at the evidence," and now I can say that rock was Christ. And and so from this we look at if Christ, if the food and drink means that Christ is our sustenance. Here we see with the rock that if Christ is the rock, then He is the source as well—the source of our sustenance. He is our sustenance, but He's also the source of our sustenance. And I think I might jump to this sermon next week because I'm super excited about it. But it's very intriguing. And I think we're going to also find not only in this story of the water coming from the rock, not not only is Christ our source, uh, but he is our substitute as well. But I'm going to leave you hanging on that. You can study those passages out. That's um, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20. You can study that out for yourself and see what you think, but I, I believe I'm going to preach on that next week. Let's look at verse 7 and 8. Uh, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is referring to the rebellion that was persistent in the children of Israel. The children of Israel Israel were nothing if not rebellious. And we have here, I, I really don't think this is just one incident that is described. I think we have details from varying incidents. It says they rose up to play. That's the exact same words that are used in Exodus 32 when they made the golden calf and then they rose up to play in sexual immorality. But we also see a reference to uh, perhaps Numbers 16 where you have Korah's rebellion and they were questioning who should be the leader. And Moses said, I'll tell you what, if, if you guys die a natural death, Uh, Then you know, and everyone knows that you guys were right and I'm wrong. But if something strange happens when you die, then you'll know I am the leader that God has put in place. And just then, the earth opened up, swallowed them whole, and all of their followers. And then the others were afraid. And fire came from heaven and devoured the rest. And Moses is like, "Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Right? I'm, I'm, I thought I was the leader God intended here." Uh, In that same incident. There's, there's persistent uh, grumbling and questioning and rebellion. And a plague sets out. Or maybe there's a different incident. I, I, there, there's so many different incidences of the children of Israel rebelling. In one, there's this plague that breaks out. And the people are, are, are dying. And Moses sends Aaron out, rushing into the crowd to atone for their sins. And he like creates this aisle just by running and, and, and sprinkling them with the atoning uh, blood, and, and wherever He sprinkled, the, the, the plague stopped. And so we see so many different pictures. There's Numbers 25, where there's Baal worship at Peor. There's so much. But what is common in all of these instances of rebellion is there is an intercessor. There's a Savior. And there's the type of Christ in all these pictures of rebellion. There's always... Someone that's pleading on behalf of the people to God to rescue them. And so we're going to take some time in a future sermon and look at that aspect. Of course, Christ is our intercessor. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, and that's a great word, And you need to take that to heart, because what that means is there's nobody here that's too big of a sinner that Christ can't save you. There's no one that's gone too far off the path. There's no one that can say, listen, I know God can save most people, but I'm too far gone. This says that Jesus Christ can save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. This is the Christ we see in all the different rebellions in their wilderness wanderings. And then one more reference I think for sure is made where it says in verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So here we see a picture of, of judgment during the wilderness wanderings. And particularly, Numbers 21 is referenced where they were destroyed by serpents. And here, while they were being destroyed by serpents, you know the story, Moses is commanded to fashion a serpent out of bronze and erect it on a stick, and then people would look at it and live. And so there, in this story, Christ, the type of Christ is the serpent. Christ is the serpent. And of course, he references this, What's the most famous Bible passage in the world you see it at every football game on TV and basketball game john 316 that's right but this is in reference to John 314 and 15 where it says um, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the Son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life so there we have qu- Four quick types of Christ. If you had read this passage on your own, would you have missed any of those? Would you have taken the time to see Christ? And then having seen Christ, would you go back in the Old Testament and read those passages extensively and carefully and say, okay, if I didn't have the Apostle Paul, would I have been able to figure out that Christ is in the wilderness wanderings? That's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. But let me give you a riddle first before we continue with the sermon here uh who he who makes it doesn't need it he who buys it doesn't use it he who uses it doesn't know it. what is it? anybody know this guy knows you know <laughs> like he's like, yeah, I know <laughs> let me say it one more time. he who makes it doesn't need it he who buys it doesn't use it he who uses it doesn't know it it is a coffin there you how many knew that you guys knew that right i i love riddles i've got a riddle that uh i've given my kids i'm not going to share it with you because i'm afraid some of you are going to give them the answer what it's been two years now since i've given you guys this riddle a year at least they don't know the answer and i tell them i feel like i would be doing you a disservice if i give you the answer because when you find the answer Maybe I'll be dead and gone. But when you find the answer to this riddle, you will feel so rewarded that you've thought of it. So I'm not going to share that with you for fear you'll give them the answer. But why do I say this? Why did I say this? Let's go to my nose. Oh, yeah. Uh, looking for Jesus in Scripture, it's more than just looking for intriguing riddles. Okay, where, where can I find Jesus? Where, where is He in this passage? What does that look like for me? That's not what it's about. Finding Jesus in Scriptures, you will find, is always, always Always practical. So for instance, in this passage, because Jesus is our sustenance and our satisfaction, our source, our substitute, our Savior, because He is all these things and if we truly embrace that and lean into that fully... Because of that, we will find that we are not nearly as susceptible to these three specific areas of evil that we ought not desire. You see, he says it twice, once in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And I think he says it again in verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. And so... In, this, in these types of Christ, we see some very clear um, instructions, some really clear areas of evil to avoid. And you're going to find this is super practical. And so the three areas that he mentions are idolatry and immorality, sexual immorality and grumbling. But we're going to go through those one at a time and look at those. But idolatry, sexual immorality, grumbling... And you may be thinking, well, it seems like I was expecting something bigger than that. Grumbling? Idolatry? Well, have you something heavier on your mind that you want me to preach on or that you want God to instruct you about? Are there more pressing issues in your life that you feel you need something a little deeper than idolatry and immorality and grumbling? Um, Well, I I want to caution you with two things. First of all, there was a time in the church, where something like idolatry and immorality were still considered shocking sins, and there, there no today in our church, there, in our times, there are no less severe those sins. We, we've just become acclimated to them, unfortunately. Um, but also, keep in mind where Israel was. We're looking at Israel here. Israel was a people without a nation. Israel was a people that were traveling through the wilderness hounded by other nations that were trying to kill them. Israel were a people trying to figure out who they were in relationship to God. They were going to the promised land. They were being severely tested for 40 years. And in all that, God brings out three specific sins. Idolatry, sexual immorality, and grumbling. Grumbling maybe being the most, most common one that he was dealing with his children with. So, if it was important to them, I think it's important to us. So, Though we may be acclimated to some of these sins culturally, let's deacclimate ourselves. Let's rip that callous off our souls and expose a tender, sensitive, raw conviction that might be revealed in our lives. So let's look at these one at a time. First of all, idolatry. Where do we see that? Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Now, don't take a deep breath yet. I want to think about what idolatry looks like in our life. Let's just meditate, reflect on this together. I think to know what idolatry is, we need to think about what worship is. I think if we really zero in on worship, I I suspect there might be a lot of us that realize that we do very little worship on Sunday morning, but we do quite a lot of worship during the week. And it's really worships of some kind of idols in our lives. You know, back in the New Testament times and in the Old Testament times, there were household idols. You, You can go to places on the planet today where there's still household idols in the sense that we think of household idols, like statues on a shelf. And sometimes they're family idols. You marry someone, maybe she'll bring in her idols and you'll combine your idols. But in these times, and even today in certain cultures, the idol, the household idol would be what you would look to for support and success. The idol is what you would depend on in difficult times. The idol is where you would go to find relief. That household idol is, is what you would credit your success and your blessings to. The idol was your object of devotion. So just thinking through those things, let's, let's turn those questions on ourselves. Where do you go when you're looking for support and success? Where do you look when you need someone to lean on in difficult times, or something to lean on in difficult times? Where do you find your relief? Those could be a lot of different things. What about where, uh, to what do you credit your success and your blessings? My effort, my inheritance my citizenship, my country, my circumstances. What about the object of your devotion? What are you most devoted to? What is so attached to you that if someone were to be your friend, like, hey, if you're my friend, this is part of the package. This comes with me. I really challenge you to take some time this week because we all instantly, no, I don't have any idols. Of course I don't have any idols. Let's think through what those idols may be. Maybe it would be helpful for us I brought a suitcase with potential idols. Let's put it on a pedestal here. I wanted like one of those Greek columns, you know, so it would look really like an idol, but I don't have that. So we got a stool, and I got some potential idols here that based on that description of what those, um, what a a household idol was, let's see what some possible American idols might be. Let's see. Let's do this one first. This is, here's an idol. The cell phone. A little idol, simple one. Fits in your pocket. But, you know, when I see this, I see the idol of status in, in a lot of ways. One way, just whichever phone you have. Some, some some people, they like their phone tells you how up-to-date they are, how wealthy they are, how in they are, but then what's on the phone, social media. That's, that's the status, that you know how how successful I am, how beautiful I am, how, how good of a mother I am. And uh, look how many followers I have. I say this one, this one I sent out this tweet, and look how many people liked it. Oh, oh I got retweeted. Someone said something I said. So this could be an idol. Let's see another possible idol. Let's go ahead and get this one out of the way. Ooh, I smell it. I smell it. Look it. Let's do it like a commercial. Let's put it. Oh yeah! Look at that. Right there. Mmm. Mm, anyone else hungry right now? Look at that idol. Food, pleasure. My body need I need food to live, don't I? I? I I Ryan, that can't be an idol. Well, how much does this consume us? That could be an idol. Uh likewise, this was hard for me not to eat any of this in preparation for this sermon. Likewise, uh this could be an idol. Ugh. Let me. There we go. What else is in here? So oh, this dumbbell and vitamins. What is that? What could this represent? Just like our pleasure could be our idol, our health could be our idol, and that has some new meanings now, especially in present context. You know, America is such a place of extremes. You know, the most unhealthy people in the world, and then the people so healthy. It's almost like they have come circle around again. They're unhealthy and how healthy they are. Uh, but even now, is is our health our idol? I don't think, you know, you're here. And people, I'm not saying people that aren't here, health is not their idol. I'm not saying that. This could be for any one of us. Longevity, how healthy I am right now. Health could be an idol. Uh, Let me do just one more. Uh, Clearly health is not my idol. Uh, We'll do this one. This in conjunction, lest you are too proud of yourself this also okay, some good classic books, literature token okay what might this be just diversion, entertainment, you know a different kind of pleasure but in honesty um, there's a lot of different idols we can have and Really, by me pulling these out, all I've done is reveal to you what um, my potential idols are in my life. But if you had your magic suitcase up here, what might you put on here? It could be something different. It could be a house. It could be um, a career. It could be... Um, a certain amount of wealth. It could be a certain kind of retirement that you would like to have. What would you put on this pedestal if you were describing your idol? But let's go back to scripture and let's get, let's sharpen a biblical description of what idolatry might be. And to do this, let's look at Romans chapter 12. We'll put it on the screen. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. You know, when I was a kid, um, There was a lot of reading Scripture out loud together in church. Let's do this together. Let's read this together. You follow my lead. You say it out loud with me. Let's read together. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what I see in this passage is What we choose to sacrifice for indicates what we're worshiping. That clarifies it for me. What we choose to sacrifice for indicates what we are worshiping. So what do you sacrifice for and what is it that you are sacrificing? Maybe figure that out first and it will make it more clear what your potential idols are. Self-sacrifice is good and admirable. Um... But what do you sacrifice? You sacrifice money. Everyone's sacrificing money for something, I'm sure. Your time. Especially for men. Men, if you are sacrificing time with your family, for what? That just may be an idol in your life. You need to look out for that. I know, I know that's my temptation. What do you sacrifice time for your family for? Usually, it's it's not usually something petty like I'm out there hunting, or usually it's something good that that our society admires. Um, but what do you sacrifice time with God for? When you're giving up time with the Lord for what, that's a pretty good indication of what you worship more. Uh, can I just be honest with you? My time in the morning, I love getting up, sitting in front of the fire spending time in God's Word, drinking coffee. Rachel's there. The dog is there. But do you know what my temptation is? Is to go jump right into the news. To grab the phone instead of the Bible and see what the news of the day is. What did I miss last night? So what am I, what am I doing? I'm sacrificing time with God to be informed about the news of the day. That's a sacrifice. That indicates worship. Uh, when you choose to sleep instead of getting up and spending time in prayer, when you choose to sleep instead of coming to church, you're making a sacrifice. What is your true object of worship? So I think Romans 12 clarifies it for us a little bit. But the primary idolatry that they were dealing with was sexual immorality. You you can see that clearly in verse 7. Do not be idolaters, or some of them were, as it was written. It, it de- describes the kind of idolatry they were dealing with. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality. So sexual immorality is another just very practical sin. By looking back and reflecting on where we see Christ in those passages, it's going to help us to not indulge in sexual sin. The word indulge there is interesting. That means in the moment it's very rewarding. You're indulging yourself. We wouldn't do it if we didn't like it. We wouldn't be tempted towards it if it wasn't rewarding in the short term. But he says you gotta. If Christ is your sustenance, your source, your savior, then your substitute, then you're not going to be as um, led astray by these sexual immorality, and and it is so prevalent probably more prevalent than you realize in our culture today. Of course, it's in your pocket, men. Uh, You don't no longer have to go to a a seedy back parking lot to get it. You can just be 18 years old and go to a theater that says Rated R on it, and you could watch Immorality. It's in literature. It's on TV. It's in animated video games. It's in advertisements, and it's in pop-ups. Sexual immorality is everywhere, and we must be on guard. We must... Maintain that north star of Christ in all that we do to guard ourselves against it. When you stand before the judgment seat one day, or maybe one day when your son is looking up at you, disappointed by what you have done, the excuse, ah, you know what, is just everywhere. That's not going to fly. Sexual immorality is not just action. We know from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus said, if you look, on someone and lust after them in your heart, you've committed adultery. It's not just action, but it's intent, it's thought, it's desire, it's imagination. It includes gaze, it includes touch, it includes talk. Sometimes we just, in our mind, we think of the absolute worst, most egregious act of of immorality and anything short of that, well, that's okay. It's not okay. This is one of the things that was prevalent in the children of Israel, prevalent amongst the Corinthians. This is a church. And I think it's prevalent in the church today. I pray to God it's not prevalent in our church. It just makes me sick every single time I see someone that's too much of a coward to just say what they're doing. Just just say, you know what? I'm doing something wrong, so I'm going to back out of this ministry position or I'm going, to, I'm going to be honest with my wife. It just, sin is so deceiving. We think we can get away with it. So, do not desire the evil of idolatry by keeping our eyes on Christ. Do not desire the evil of sexual immorality by keeping our minds and hearts and eyes on Christ. And then in verse 9 and 10, we see one equally as bad, but maybe almost snickered at in our culture, grumbling. It's annoying when our kids do it, but God takes this seriously. You know, the grumbling, um, this was a lesson that Israel had to relearn again and again and again. Because of grumbling, they were destroyed by snakes. Poisonous snakes come out of the sand. Earth swallowed them up. A plague was sent. They vomited meat out their nose. Anyone ever vomited so hard that meat came out your nose? That's serious. That was God's judgment on them for Grumbling again and again and again. And so we must not grumble. What is it that maybe you are tempted to grumble about? It just always seems so small, doesn't it? Yeah. I'm just I'm just I'm just sharing it with my husband. You know, I'm not I'm not making it public or anything. But here's a good question to consider. When we grumble, what does that say about our opinion of Christ? You know, in this passage says we must not put Christ To the test. Grumbling, in a way, is putting Christ to the test. It's almost like Christ is saying, have I made a mistake by allowing you in this situation? Are my plans askew? You're You're grumbling, you're complaining. Are my arms too short? Are you dissatisfied with my timing? What does our grumbling say about Jesus Christ? Now, real quickly, just to cement how practical this is, Verse 12 says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that, they, that he stands take heed lest he fall. So some of these sins may be so small in your, in your mind that it's not even something I need to worry about. Take heed lest you fall. Other these sins, so egregious, so huge, I would never fall into that. Take heed lest you fall. But we end on this beautiful promise. Verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you, that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it." So here we see two sides of the coin. Common temptation, but extraordinary escape. Common temptation. I don't care what your mother told you. You're not unique. Everyone suffers whatever temptation you have suffered. In fact, I would even say Christ experienced whatever temptation you've experienced. It is common, and that's the satanic deception. The satanic deception is 999 times out of a thousand, this would be wrong. But in your case, your situation is just so. God's saying, No, it's common. Everyone experienced it, every man, every woman, they've all experienced what you experience. You're not unique, you're not special. You're just a rebellious sinner if you fall into this sin. But we have extraordinary escape. God is faithful, He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So, even the word escape and endure and ability, it's not going to be easy. It's going to require some effort, it's going to require some mental discipline, some toughness, some resolve, but if He is allowing you in, He's arranged for you and out. And you can be sure that whatever temptation is before you, you need to just realize, okay, God has allowed me to be here, He wouldn't put me in this spot, He wouldn't even allow me near this spot if I didn't have the ability given from Him to me to escape this spot. But don't forget your north star. It's always keeping our eyes on Jesus. Finding Him in Scripture. Jesus will guide you home. He will sustain, satisfy. He will be your source. He will be your substitute. He is your Savior. Just put your eyes on Him as you go to Scripture. Put your eyes on Him and find your way home. Jesus is our spiritual northern star. Let's stand and let's close with that thought.